Well, this is a sermon about believing in Christ and in particular in his resurrection. Being a Christian is, at bottom, holding on to a man and what he did. The man is Jesus Christ. Not merely a man, but certainly a man. And what he did is summarised in this passage from 1 Corinthians 15 that's printed in your insert and that was read as our epistle by Jacqueline. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom were still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Jesus died was buried, was raised, and appeared. In writing all this about Jesus, Paul says he's passing on a tradition, a common tradition. For what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance. That these deeds of the death and rising and appearance of Christ are the very foundation, the ground zero of the message that Christians had for the world and still have, the message that Christians take hold of and still do. So verse 11, the end of our passage, whether then it is I or they who gave this message, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. Here is the beginning and the heart of what Christians broadcast to the world and believe together. So today what I want to have a look at is the meaning of this foundation of Christianity in the death and resurrection of Christ. I want to ask about the credibility of this foundation and I want to ask about the effect of this foundation of the death and resurrection of Christ on what it means to be a Christian. So let's begin with... uh, asking about the meaning. The foundation of Christianity in the death and resurrection of Christ means, at least this, it means that it begins not with what we might do, but with what Christ has done. It's pretty clear that not all is well with human beings. On the large scale, you open the papers or Look at the news websites and there's wars and injustice, there's exploitation, there's prejudice and many other things we could name. On a personal level, in our own lives, we are tossed around. We're tossed around by our external circumstances, jobs, families, school, friends, health, money. We're tossed around by internal dynamics, by anxiety and hope, by fear and guilt and sadness and frustration and elation and all between. Many approaches to life try to help you deal with all that. All that's not right about the world and about life. And wants to say, here here is how we can get control and improve things. Or here's how we can let go and not be so troubled about things. Whether it's the practice of mindfulness or the Eightfold Path and cultivating compassion... On the one hand, or whether it's kind of data and rational analysis and systematic implementation on the other, this tries to help us get hold of the troubles of life and control them or do something to manage and improve them. And Christians don't start with a method like that. 
We're not about a practice in the first instance or an approach. We, the key to a better world and a better me doesn't lie in a method or in us. It lies in Christ. We start with a person and what he did. So what did he do? He died for our sins. And our sins are at the bottom of the trouble in our world and in our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that we choose all our sins freely, voluntarily. It doesn't mean that our troubles correspond to our sins either. The world is more complicated than that, but we are, because of sin, in a state of alienation from God. That we have this resistance to God in us. An ignorance of God. We've lost touch with him and don't know him. That's what it means to be a sinner. We have this inherited and self-renewed and self-renewing capacity. Captivity, I should say. To our own crookedness. The gospel, the glad tidings is that Christ died for our sins. Died to reconcile us to God, to overcome that alienation. Died to obtain for us God's pardon and forgiveness. He died to renew our knowledge of God. To set us free from the grip and the guilt and the threat of sin and death and hell. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised. He was buried, underlines that he really did die. His lifeless body was laid in a tomb, cold and limp and heavy. He was raised, claims that God pulled Christ through death and out to the other side into a new kind of life, a glorified life, alive to God, an imperishable life beyond the reach of death. The tomb was empty. And his body was gone. That body of Christ was no longer a corpse, but the first fruits of those who have died, Paul writes later in this chapter. That body was the first of a great harvest to be gathered from the grave, from oblivion. That body was a transformed transhumanity, if you like, a humanity that's gone beyond where we are. Today, it's washed and healed and shining. Now, being a Christian is believing that in this man, Jesus Christ, in what he did and what happened to him, that is, that is what God has done for us. It's to believe that all this was for us, for you and for me, and that we will follow Jesus into that resurrection life. He's gone ahead of us and he will bring us with him in the end. This is God's gift of salvation to us. And hanging on to Jesus and trusting in him, that is the key. Before any trust we might put in ourselves. So that is the meaning, I guess, the foundation of Christian faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It doesn't start with us and what we might do to follow a method to manage our lives. It starts with Christ and what he did to 
provide a gift of salvation. The second question I want to address is, is this credible, this foundation of Christianity, this claim of death and resurrection? The report that he was raised on the third day, is that really worthy of our acceptance? Now let me say a couple of things about this. Let's start by noting, firstly, that this chapter we're reading, printed in our you know, fresh um, uh, service sheets off the modern printer, that those words were written about 20 years after Christ's death. They weren't written in English, obviously, they were written in Greek. But this letter was written by someone who claimed to be an eyewitness to the events that he is writing about, and who was, in fact, at the centre of early Christianity. Dating the letter of 1 Corinthians in the mid-50s of the first century is well agreed by scholars, 54 to 57. It's writing, therefore, that comes from the same generation of people who are there at the death and resurrection of Christ. Here are some things that happened 20 years ago, just for reference, for what 20 years passing feels like. The Bali bombings were 20 years ago this year. The premiere of Kath and Kim was 20 years ago this year. Steve Bradbury winning the 1,000 metres ice skating gold for Australia was 20 years ago this year. That's what 20 years feels like in memory. Our source, 1 Corinthians 15, is credibly close to the events it proclaims. It looks back also on a history of proclamation. It's not like suddenly, 20 years later, someone made the claim, oh, Jesus is raised from the dead. It's that 20 years later, you could look back on a long history of this fact being held out to the world. Secondly, apart from it being a, a piece of writing from the generation of the events that it purported to report, it was important to the early Christians to anchor the resurrection in history, in reality. They affirmed that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures that he appeared to Cephas, a named person, that's Peter the Apostle. Then to the twelve, a, a bunch of people who were, who were known. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom were still living, though some have fallen asleep, that is, died. Then he appeared to James, who is James, the brother of Jesus, who became a leader of the Jerusalem church. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. So Jesus' resurrection is not for Christians a symbolic legend. It's not a private vision. He appeared, he was seen to, he was seen by individuals, he appeared to groups for a period of time in the course of history. And the witnesses are identified and remembered. And that's important. The Christians from the first generation were making a claim about something that had happened in history to people they knew. Thirdly, about the credibility of this claim, the energy of the Christian movement comes out of their conviction about the resurrection. Paul writes in the coming chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, If I fought wild beasts at Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? Now, you might think, what is he talking about? Fighting wild beasts at Ephesus, we don't actually know, but Paul is someone who, whose manner of life and preaching of Jesus stirred up trouble for him. He was opposed, 
threatened, run out of town, beaten up, imprisoned. Now, in a way, fought wild beasts, metaphorically at least. And at Ephesus, there was a riot over him and his work. He was nearly torn apart. You read about it in Acts. And he says, if I do all this for merely human hopes, what have I gained? Well, I've gained a very difficult life. He's saying, I can only live like I do because of my hope that's grounded in Jesus' resurrection. Because the thing that I go around proclaiming, because I've seen the risen Christ, and so I can face death. I can face death any day, and I do. Now, Paul is one outstanding early Christian whose faith and manner of life is fired by the conviction that Jesus rose. And he is not alone. The rest of the disciples are fired by the same conviction. The engine that fired the early Christian movement. Well, what was it? If not the absolute conviction that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. What else would give the impetus to the movement? Think about that. Because something did. It didn't just happen for no reason. Something put this burning conviction in the hearts of those whose lives then upended eventually the whole Roman Empire. How else did it get going if not the truth of the claim that this Jesus whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of the fact. Now, a great scepticism has been directed against the claims about Jesus for a long time now. Lots of currency at the moment to the ideas that science has made God unnecessary. The Bible is historically totally dubious. Uh, Morally, it's, it's nasty and backward and repressive. That God is probably non-existent, but if he does exist, he's awful. Some of the energy in this rejection of God and of Christ comes from people's encounters with, let's admit it, with flawed Christians and flawed churches and that people have had a bad taste left in their mouths. But... Any reasoning we might do, any of us, about the claim that Jesus rose and that Paul saw him is entangled in lots of other things we think and we feel about God, about Christians, etc. So it's not simple or clear-cut or slam-dunk. Maybe we really want all this to be true. Maybe we really do not want all this to be true. Maybe we're kind of torn both ways. The claim that Jesus was raised on the third day is, to be sure, disputed, but it's also continued to convince, even convince some sceptics who at one time dismissed it. Perhaps it's easy to dismiss this claim if you say, look, all claims about the supernatural are hogwash. Physics is the beginning and the end. There's life and there's death and that's that and there need be no further discussion. If you're prepared to be that firm on those things, perhaps it's easier to say, well, of course this didn't happen. It doesn't matter what anyone says, what the history is, it's irrelevant. It couldn't have happened. However, 
Perhaps it's harder to dismiss if you were all open to the possibility that our world is created in a way that physics cannot manage. Or that the goodness that made us may wish to help us and redeem us in the end. I'm happy to ponder the credibility of Jesus' resurrection further with you if you would like. Let's turn, though, thirdly and lastly, to the effect of this foundation of Christianity in the death and resurrection of Christ. And the effect of it is an experience of grace. Paul experienced his encounter with the risen Christ as firstly deeply humbling. He was on the road to Damascus, famously, to arrest any Christians that he could find there. And so for him to meet Jesus, the risen Jesus, was to be confronted by his sin, his error, his awful misjudgment. So Paul writes in verse 8, And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. I was a strange case, out of time. And I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle Because I persecuted the church of God. I had it so wrong. To meet Jesus was such a blow in that way. But for Paul to meet Jesus was also profoundly life-giving. It was a gift of grace, of favour, of acceptance. It was a blessing, an act of forgiveness and an evocation of hope. Paul was called to see and know and serve the risen Christ and that transformed him. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. It's the same in Isaiah, our Old Testament reading, did you notice? Meeting God is both humbling and elevating. Woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips. From there to here I am, send me. We may not have seen the risen Christ with our eyes, but part of what it means for Christ to be risen, to be alive, is that he still comes to us. He comes to us by his Holy Spirit, and he can dwell in our hearts through faith. And we can know his grace to us, which will humble us. Woe is me, we might say. I'm a person of unclean lips, but which will also lift us up and energise us. Here I am. Send me. And so let me finish with two questions. How will you be called back to the risen Christ this week? What will turn your attention, your heart, back to him? How will he renew you in the experience of grace that comes from knowing him as the dying and risen one? Seek that experience, that renewal, that recall to him from him this week. My second question and last question is, how will you serve the risen Christ this week? Where will it prove true in your life that his grace to you is not without effect? Seek that also from him. Seek to serve him, the risen Christ. Let's pray.
Father, help us to understand the meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus, what it means that he died for our sins and rose again. Where, Lord, this seems to us incredible or doubtful or where we struggle with it, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us to reflect carefully on what can be said for that claim. But most of all, Lord, we pray that we would encounter Jesus Christ risen as his spirit brings him to us, to our hearts, and that we would know the grace that Christians through the ages have known of being both humbled by meeting your son Jesus and also uplifted. We pray that we would know your grace to us and the forgiveness of our sins and that that grace would not be without effect, that we would live lives that are energised to serve you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.